Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Your host, Andrew Donaldson. This is Herd Tell. Hi, welcome back to Herd Tell. He is back. Dennis Sanders, our good friend uh, up in the Twin City area. He is a writer. He's a commentator. He's also a local pastor. Man that wears many, many, many hats and does them all very well. He also has his own uh, platform that we're going to talk about in a minute to do some writing. And he also joins us at Ordinary-Times.com. Dennis, how are you, my friend? I am doing well. Doing very well. Always thrilled to talk to you, especially on this, because uh, we've been kind of kicking around wanting to talk about this for a while, but uh, we were covering labor a while back. You did a little bit of pushback of how we covered labor, but let's get the bona fides first, because you're from one of the great labor areas of the world, Flint, Michigan. Yes, I was born and raised in in Flint. Uh, Both my parents were um, auto workers. So that meant that they were both members of the United Auto Workers, um, different locals, but both members, union members. So you've got that strong union background. You grew up in that area, but you've also seen the after effects where, you know, those great union jobs, those great union benefits didn't really play out for everybody too awful well, did it in the long run? No. And that's, that's kind of the hard thing is um, growing up as I did in the seventies and eighties, Flint had a, that was the thing that was going on in, in the city. In the Flint area alone, there were about 80,000 people that worked for General Motors. Um, And for those who don't know, General Motors actually had its start in Flint. Today, it is probably around 8,000. So that's, as you can tell, it's a huge amount of of jobs that were lost that really, really changed the city in ways that are, I think, for a lot of people, unimaginable. Yeah. And this is a story um, you're talking about Flint. Uh, you can talk about Youngstown, Ohio, where exactly. I have family that just decimated Black Monday, one of the, the <laughs> real labor stories in the history of the U.S. Pittsburgh, anywhere in the Rust Belt. Um, what you tell me, because you grew up with that, it's part of your DNA, that blue collar union labor, something that was a lot of pride in that. People said, I'm a union guy and they meant it and it meant something. Try to explain that to somebody of a later generation that that's that just thinks of Detroit as, you know, the Detroit area and the Flint area and the economic uh, recessions that happened as that faded away. Try to take people back to that time growing up in that time when that was your whole identity almost, wasn't it? It pretty much was. And it was a kind of an age of people. It was sort of in some ways a family. Um, Lots of things that GM sponsored that were made up part of the community. And I think people had pride. This was something that you could 
go into without going to college and make actually a, a fairly good um, salary that you could support a family on. And so I think the cost of the kind of the how people lived and everything was was pretty good. Obviously, we weren't making as much as doctors or things to that extent. But I think for um, people working in manufacturing, it was it was um, fairly good pay. It allowed people to do things they probably wouldn't have been able to do. And I think especially for African-Americans who um, kind of like my dad came up from the South to places like Michigan for more opportunity, it, it did get them that. It got them more greater opportunity, greater economic benefits that they um, had they would have never had had they just stayed in the South. Yeah, talking to our friend Dennis Sanders. Okay, so the next step of that journey, though, of course, is the unions diminish. We know unions in union labor specifically in the United States of America is at its lowest form of basically recorded since we started tracking it. Um, we know the industrials have gone down. You just mentioned it. Do we overblow how benevolent companies used to be? Was it union power that balanced it out? There seems to be a lot of myth-making and legends involved in these sorts of things. Try to cut through some of that for us. What, what was it that changed so bad? It, wasn't, it can't all be one and all the other. How do you kind of foresee it looking back on it now, and especially with the way you've been writing about it? I think it's a little bit of both. I think there were companies and people who believed that if you wanted to have um, people buying your products, you had to pay them well. Um, they believed in trying to help their local communities. Um, I think uh, one of the things that I did recently, a podcast on um, someone by the name of J. Irwin Miller, he was the um, CEO of Cummings Engine in um, Indiana. And there was actually an interesting article in the Atlantic kind of about his all the things that he did to help benefit that local community, um, you know, from helping, you know, bringing kind of world-renowned architects to build public buildings to all of that. But it was also unions as well, that um, it's kind of that unions were pushing for, for better wages, um, for safer working conditions. Um, just things to that extent that they, we're pushing for whether, and that sometimes meant going on strike um, to do that. Uh, one of the things that was um, really a part of Flint lore and part of labor lore is the 1936-37 sit-down strike um, in Flint, uh, where several of the factories, they basically literally stopped um, and sat down. And this was simply for that, at that time, to getting labor recognition the company, General Motors, didn't want to recognize the union. And this was a way for them to kind of make that possible. And I think once that happened, you know, again, it brought forth things like better benefits, health care, retirement, things that in a lot of cases we take for granted was done really because of labor. But it's not all, all labor and it's not all benevolent companies. It's both. And I think in some ways we've lost both of those things in our modern culture. See, I know that, you know, coming from West Virginia, if there was ever a group of people that ever needed a union, it was coal miners. Because, mm-hmm. um, you know, they owned you. They owned you with the script. You lived in a company house. They paid you with company script. It, it was terrible what was going on with the coal miners. You could do it with any other industry as well. But at the same time, the union's 
kind of warped and developed, they were not always the benevolent organizations they should have been either, were they? No, I, I think that's also important to know too. Unions sometimes also had a racist history. Um, they wouldn't necessarily include African-Americans um, in, in their unions. That, that changed over time, but that wasn't always the case. And I think even in modern day, they've been slow to adapt to kind of the changing nature of um, the market. Um, as we've become a more globalized society, you know, we have to find ways of how do we continue to support things like trade, not necessarily to the extent that it's hurting people, but, but I think that there are benefits to trade. And so how do you do that and also support workers? Um, and I think sometimes unions were slow in getting to that. Um, they were also sort of sometimes slow in dealing with competition, um, especially with United Auto Workers in the 70s, as we started to see the rise of, of Japan, um, especially in the car market. I think both General Motors and the unions were not quick in trying to figure out how to compete against um, these new these companies that were now kind of making their way into the American marketplace. So, you know, there are always drawbacks to unions. And I think I always want to say that, you know, unions aren't perfect. Um, and some of those problems do need to be uh, lifted up. But I also think even as imperfect as they are, they do have a purpose in our society. Yeah. And one of the things, because people knock me and think I'm anti-union, I'm actually not anti-union. I don't think unions are a one-size-fits-all solution. I don't think they're this panacea where everything a union does is perfect because we know better with the record of that. I look to, This is one of the few things I think Europe actually does a better job than we do. Unions mm -hmm. are not as adversarial. They're not as political. Uh, they work more in partnership. They're more symbiotic. How did it become so adversarial between unions and the companies? And again, it can't all be just one or the other, despite the way we're told it is. That it's just these evil, wicked companies. Look, companies got to make money, too. Mm -hmm. uh, how did this become so adversarial and to the detriment of the unions? Because we see the union membership. It's, it's the lowest it's ever been. That's a good kind of good question. I don't have a great answer to that, except that I think sometimes just in American society, we tend to be more adversarial. Um, as a in our nature, um, as opposed to kind of in, in Europe. I think sometimes some, some of the different um, ways that our different societies came out of out of that, you know, my guess is, especially in Europe, um, it, well, in the United States, we have not really had a history of strong uh, socialist parties for, for one um, thing, whereas there has been a strong case of that. So part of adversarial relationship probably was shown more in the voting booth than it was in actually the workplace in um, as it is here. It's not as much shown in the work on the voting booth. So it showed itself in the workplace. Um, so I think that's kind of where the difference is. Um, at least it, it kind of a, a guess from what I can observe. Um, but I think that that's something that probably needs to change. I, I think that the adversarial approach doesn't that might have worked in the 1930s and 40s um, when this was a new thing and part and companies weren't as amenable. But I think that we're in a different age now. And so I think that um, unions have to change with that and um, maybe look at what Europe is doing or to think about. I, I know that 
I believe it's um, Oren Cass who it works with um, American Compass, which is a conservative uh, think tank that um, tends to be more pro-labor, but thinks that we should have something that maybe is instead of working with one company that it's uh, the union is more based on a different industries um, that makes it a little bit less um, confrontational, but more kind of working together. Um, so I think that there, there is definitely room and necessity for unions to change with the times just because they exist. Doesn't mean that the way that they struck are structured now is the way that they should always be structured. Yeah, the old, uh, they call it the, the working guild or the trade guild model. Mm -hmm. uh, exactly. We're talking to our friend Dennis Sanders. We're going to continue with him after the break. Uh, we're going to continue to talk about labor, union and otherwise. And also he's got a great example of how labor and things change with Kmart and Sears a lot and the downfall of it, except in one place where it's still thriving. We'll talk about that when we come back. Our friend Dennis Saunders on Hertel right after this. Uh, welcome back to Hurtel. We're having a good time talking to our buddy Dennis Sanders, but kind of a serious topic on labor and unions and things of this nature. Uh, one thing about unions that always strikes me, I think they're really misbegotten in where they're picking their battles right now. Uh, organized labor, especially big labor, they are all in on going against the gig economy, the uh, secondary economy, whatever you want to call it. Why do you want to alienate Look, unions are down to something like 10% of the workforce. The gig economy is up to something like 30% of the workforce. Why are you picking a fight with the very people that you're arguing that you want to come into your unions? And all you're really doing is alienate them because they're like, look, leave us alone and let us work. This seems really misbegotten to me. That I totally agree with. Um, I think one of the worst things that I've seen, especially the, the law that came out in California, which I think wreaked habit on a lot of gig workers, you know, I think part of it comes from this belief that they think that um, the gig economy is just exploitative. And so they think that, well, wouldn't you really want to just work in an office or, or in an industry or whatever, um, like everyone else? Um, what I think the unions don't realize is that the nature of work has changed. Um, there are a lot of people that want to work on their own. They want to be contractors. They, they want the, th the flexibility that comes with all of that. And so coming in with a law that basically messes, messes all of this up isn't helpful. And it really just makes, uh, makes more enemies against unions than um, what is necessary. I mean, if unions want to be of help in this changed economy, then what they should be about is trying to create guilds or things to that extent that would help people who, who do go into the gig economy instead of trying to basically mess up what they want to do, which is to work independently um, to, and to call their own hours. Yeah, here's where I depart from some of our labor and labor friendly brethren. I think you absolutely have a right to start a union. I've been a supervisor in a company that was non-union. We had it hanging on the walls. I've had, I've I've facilitated the meetings for union reps to come into the non-union rep. We set them up in a break room. There's very specific rules how you have to handle those things. I've done all that. I've, I've interacted with them. I know how those things work. My thing is you absolutely have a right to have a union. 
But that also means you should absolutely have a right to not have to go through a union to make your livelihood. And that just seems to be the disconnect with some of the big labor folks and and people that I know that are genuinely pro-worker and they really believe that that's the best thing to do. If you're just changing one tyranny of a company to the tyranny of a union, and especially if you have a union that also has the backing of the federal government, which all too often is the case nowadays, that's there's no way you can convince me that that's pro-worker because if the union has the backing of the government and you don't have a choice to be in the union or not, where's a worker go then? Yeah, and I agree. One, one of the things I remember growing up that I can just remember, even as a kid, I didn't like this, is um, the whole concept of a, I think they would call it a closed shop, where basically if you took a job, you are automatically part of the union. And there was a part of me that was bothered by that because you didn't have a choice of whether you wanted to be in the union or not. And I, I get what they're trying to get at with um, collective bargaining and all of that, but you've taken that person's choice of what they want to do out of their hands and just made them and has forced them to do something that they don't want to do. And I think, you know, that's kind of related to what's going on with the gig, gig workers is this belief that, unions are good so everyone should should can benefit and realizing that there is also choice in this people don't have to join a union um, unions are voluntary organizations and even in spite of all the good that i think that they do do and they do a lot that it's good they're voluntary and people shouldn't be forced to be part of one if they don't want to be part of one and i think that's okay that's part of to me, that's part of what it is to be an American. It's a sense of choice of what we want to do. It's part of what's killing the unions, too, that the uh, yeah. union was always supposed to be the voice of the worker. Well, everybody's got a voice now because they all have social media accounts. Like they can Google what their company's doing. They don't need their union rep to explain stock options to them. They all has, has technology just kind of made part of what the traditional union was obsolete. They've made part of it. I don't think they've made all of it. Uh, um, and I think this is maybe where the initial pushback came when um, when I wrote to you a while back is the belief that because um, we have a more, um, I don't know, atomized society, um, social media, things that allow us to speak up, we tend to think that we have more power than we used to. And I think that there, there in some cases that's true. But in other cases, it's not. You may not have the power to say, I would like to have better benefits or to deal with better health care. So there are some areas in some industries, not every industry, your one voice doesn't always um, carry when you're up against a management. And so that, that, that's where you would see a need for a union to kind of be that voice. Where I think the, I think the, the the caveat is, you have to want to be, to have them be your voice. They can't just come in and be your voice. Um, that I think is wrong because that turns people off. People don't want to have something being done for them, and in some cases they don't want necessarily a one size fits all thing. Um, so unions are still necessary, but. In this day and age, in the age of social media, in the age where of a gig worker, it's not going to operate like it did in 1968. 
Um, we're not that economy. And that's, I think, part of the problem why unions aren't doing as well is because they haven't necessarily always changed with the times. And speaking of things that changed at the times, you've been writing about Sears and Kmart. It ain't 63 for them either, is it? No, it's not. It's, um, it is 2022 and they are almost on their way out. What got you on Sears? I mean, I know because I've worked with you on some of the pieces, uh, it's a great series, but there really is some microcosm type stuff in the downfall of Sears. And the story isn't all it's really cracked up to be. You've got a multi-piece series going on it. You're getting ready to release the sixth part of it by the time this comes out. Just nutshell it for folks, why this story is important and why is it important to revisit it and make sure we actually have the story correct? Well, the interesting part of this story and I think maybe it's to look at what, how people look at it. Um, people tend to look at what Sears and, and Kmart's downfall as, you know, this is what happens with retailers. They do well and they, they go out of business. They make bad decisions and that's what happens. And that's what happened with Sears and Kmart. And that's part of the story. Most companies don't always, you know, they, they make mistakes. They, don't always keep up with the times, but that's not really the total story here. As I've kind of say, and probably have beat this horse to death, um, what a lot of has happened with um, Sears and Kmart has to deal with who has been their CEO, um, who brought, um, brought the two companies together in 2005, and that is um, Eddie Lampert. He is a hedge fund manager. And when he brought the two companies together, um, and I did an interview a while back with a retail journalist, Warren Schulberg, and he pretty much summed it up. His number one goal was to take money out of the company to give to shareholders. That's, that's what it was. So he didn't invest in keeping the stores up. So that's why you would, there were pictures sometimes of stores that looked incredibly shabby because they hadn't been updated probably since the first Bush administration. Um, and so he took money out that made both of those companies less um, competitive and um, always made it sound like he had a turnaround plan and he never did have a turnaround plan. His whole plan was to take the money out um, so that it could be given to shareholders. And that, that's kind of what sums up the story. Um, there's a lot of other things. And I think, the, the bigger story and the reason I focus on Sears and Kmart, one is because I think had he not been there, they might still be continuing. Um, but two is because I think of the role of people like um, hedge funds and private equity have when it comes to retail. And they've done a lot of damage with retail that has cost a lot of people their jobs and their livelihoods. And the contrast for you, and you bring it up in the latest series that you've been writing on, Kmart and Sears, they're actually doing okay down south of the border, believe it or not. Yes. Um, I wrote an article a while back um, about how Sears Mexico is doing well. Um, that part of the company actually is um, has become, I think, somewhat separate from Sears here in the United States. It's owned by primarily by Carlos Slim. Um, for those who don't know, Carl Slim is probably one of the most, uh, one of the richest people in the world. Um, and he bought this, um, bought Sears Mexico. And um, 
they have invested in their stores. If you go into their stores, they're filled with um, items uh, for people to buy. Um, they are doing well. They're opening up stores uh, throughout Mexico and I think even in some other um, parts of Latin America. Um, so it's an example really of someone who was interested in um, making a profit, but also providing a good service and providing customers with um, good merchandise to buy, um, which is a very different way of doing business um, like Sears did here in the United States. Why does retail resonate with us so much? It's changed a lot with Amazon, obviously, but retail really does become an identity kind of thing because it's where you kind of, that's most people's interaction with the economy, not to put too fine a point on it, but we talk about these big economic principles, but that's kind of the bleeding edge of it. And retail has really, really changed. And it's an interesting way to look into it, isn't it? Yeah, I think that the reason that retail resonates is because there's also a social dimension to it. Um, you know, if you look at Sears again, I remember growing up in the, in the 70s, how much Sears played a part in um, my life and probably the life of a lot of people in the working and middle classes. Um, you know, you got your lawnmower, which was usually a, a, either a craftsman lawnmower uh, from Sears. Um, you got appliances, um, your Kenmore appliances from Sears. There was a, a, a kind of a way of people kind of meeting one another, knowing about each other, um, people who um, started to work with either Sears or Kmart, and it was a, a good way of making a living. So there is all of this kind of social, I think, capital that also comes into retail that I don't always think you have with Amazon because it's it's not since it's not a physical encounter, it's a virtual encounter. It's a very different thing. I mean, how I relate to Amazon is very different than how I would have relate to Sears or to JCPenney or some other um, physical brick and mortar chain. And it's not just because the Amazon is a thing of convenience and the other thing was kind of a habit. And I know Amazon's a habit, but it's a different habit because it's a it's the old touch feel here kind of teaching method. It's it's more singular where it's just, okay, click it done. When's it going to show up? Yeah. We talk about why customer service is so bad in America. There's probably something there we need to dwell into at some point in the future. Nothing wrong with your customer service, my friend. You always bring great information. Dennis Sanders, uh, let folks know where they can find you. You write at Ordinary Dash Times with us. You also appear on this program frequently. We get you every chance we get. Let folks know where they can follow you, what you got going on, where they can find that great multi-part series on Kmart and Sears. Sure. Um, they can find that series. It's found at uh, Church and Maine. So it's all a one word. So church and then and, A-N-D, maine.substack.com. And you will see the series there. Um, so please give it a read and please share it with others um, because this is a story that really needs to be known. Um, I also have a podcast and that um, is called En Route. And you can find episodes at En Route podcast.org and and root podcast is all one word yeah and it's a great podcast i've been on a couple times i always enjoy it uh you are somebody whose opinion i always value i love hashing stuff out with you my friend dennis sanders thank you for your time today sir you're welcome we'll talk later appreciate it